You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. Oh Lord Jesus, we do want to take you at your word today, that because you are being lifted up here, that all of us would be drawn to you. I pray that every person present who is yet to know you personally would come to know you today. And I also pray for those of us who are acquainted with you but perhaps need to go deeper in our relationship to you, that the preaching of the cross would drive us to our knees before you in adoration and praise. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Take your Bible, please, and turn with me to the book of John, the 19th chapter. We continue our study of the seven recorded sayings of Jesus Christ when he was crucified on Golgotha. We find ourselves at the fifth of these seventh sayings. I'm going to be reading verses 28 and 29. of John 19 from the New International Version of the Bible. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. As Jesus emerged from the blackness which had blanketed the earth for the past three hours, he had the smell of hell on his person. As we saw last week, when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was describing the anguish that he experienced as he was separated from God on the cross during those three hours of darkness from noon until 3 p.m. on the first Good Friday. Those, that word or that question which he posed to the Father reflected the anguish of soul and spirit which Jesus experienced. And this morning we hear him saying, I thirst, or as the New International Version of the Bible puts it, I am thirsty, suggesting the anguish of body that Jesus experienced on the cross. May I say something in all kindness to you this morning with all love and tenderness that the forms of anguish which our Lord and Savior endured when he was on the cross, that is, the anguish of soul and the anguish of body are the two forms of torment which people who do not know Jesus Christ will experience forever in hell. Now that ought to do something to you. If you're a Christian, it ought to really motivates you to want to introduce others to this one who can give them eternal life. If you aren't a believer, it should cause you to stop and reflect on the collision course with what the Bible describes as eternal destruction that you find yourself on apart from Jesus Christ. Now, why did Jesus say, I thirst? One reason is in order to fulfill the Scriptures. In verse 28, we see John telling us that Jesus made this statement so that the scriptures 
would be fulfilled. Irenaeus, who was one of the early church fathers, in fact, he lived just one century removed from the New Testament church, preserved the tradition that evidently had grown up in the church from its beginnings, that when Jesus was on the cross, he quoted Psalm 22 through 24. And he didn't just mumble them to himself. He quoted them in such a fashion that those who were around him could hear what he was saying. I believe there is good reason to believe that Jesus did not restrict his quotation just to those three psalms. I believe he probably went back to the book of Genesis and made his way all the way through all of Moses' writings. Then he went to the prophets and he made his way all the way through the prophets' writings and then he came back to the wisdom literature and found himself in the psalms to make sure that he had fulfilled every last iota of prophecy related to his life. Jesus was conscious when he was on the cross. And part of his reason for refusing the wine laced with myrrh, which was a mild drug given by the uh, noble women of Jerusalem to those who were being crucified to dull their pain, part of the reason that he did not accept that dulling drink was so that he could keep his mind alert to see that he had fulfilled the Scriptures. He went through Genesis and he says, is everything in Genesis fulfilled? Check. Exodus, yes. Leviticus, he must have spent a long time in Leviticus, yes. And on and on. And then he comes to Psalm 69, the 21st verse, and he makes this statement to himself. They gave me wine vinegar for my thirst. Jesus, our Lord, quoted the Scriptures while he was on the cross. He meditated on them to fulfill prophecy. Do you know a beautiful byproduct of his meditating on the Word of God was that he was enabled to maintain his faith while he was on the cross? Over and over again, as Satan barraged Jesus with attacks on the fact that he did not believe... The bird in here, by the way, is probably sent from the devil. <laughs> you know the parable of the soils? Just relax. He's going to stay up there at the light, I hope. The parable of the soils, the bird represents Satan who came and sought to steal the word of truth. Don't let this bird steal the word of truth from your heart today. God's wanting to impart to you. Ignore him or it and concentrate on the word of God. But Jesus was able to maintain his faith during this ordeal by quoting scripture and meditating on it. If he had depended on what appeared to be the truth, he would have given up right off the bat, wouldn't he? If he had listened to the taunts of the devil, he would have thrown in the towel long before they drove any spikes into his wrists and to his feet. He would have thrown in the towel in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus, in meditating on Scripture, was able to overcome the rigors of the cross. And you and I, as we endure all the difficulties of our lives, can take a page out of Jesus' book at this point. The reason God has given us the Scriptures, and over and over he says, if we will meditate on the Scriptures, we will be prosperous and successful is so that we can overcome adversity in our lives, just as Jesus did. But Jesus did not merely quote this prophecy from Psalm 69 to maintain his faith. He also quoted it, I believe, to gain recognition of who he was. He was the Lord of the universe. From the beginning of the whole passion experience, Jesus was in control. Jesus wanted those people who heard what he said when he said, I am thirsty, 
to recognize that he was in full control of his awareness that he too was the Messiah. He was the one who had come to redeem the world. I don't know about you, but when I look at the way in which Jesus fulfilled prophecies, which were given some thousands of years before he came, the precision with which the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament just blows my mind. It is phenomenal. And if you ever question the reliability of Scripture, the fulfillment of the prophecies that just pertain to Jesus in the Old Testament would be enough to make a believer out of me and should be enough to make a believer out of you. Let me cite just a few of these prophecies. The prophecy of Jesus' birthplace is foretold by the prophet Micah. And so I'm told Micah lived in 700 B.C. or thereabouts. Seven centuries before Jesus was born, Micah said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. And what about the way in which Jesus was born? Another prophet who was a peer of Micah's by the name of Isaiah. In Isaiah, the seventh chapter and the 14th verse tells us that this Messiah would be born of a virgin. And when the angel of the Lord came and revealed himself to Joseph and told him that Mary, to whom he was betrothed, was going to bear Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, as a virgin, this prophecy was fulfilled. 700 B.C. Let's go back a little further in history. Let's go back to 1,000 B.C., a whole millennium before Jesus came. Do you realize that Jesus' betrayal was predicted in Scripture? I want you to see it for yourself. Turn with me to the book of Psalm. Look at the 41st Psalm. The 41st Psalm, the ninth verse. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Judas, who was the close friend of Jesus, betrayed him. Now turn back to Psalm 22, the 16th verse, the last phrase. Last week, the psalm was read to us, and throughout it, we are shown how Jesus fulfills the role of Messiah. Look at the last line of verse 16 of Psalm 22. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This was before crucifixion, as far as archaeologists tell us, was ever known as a form of execution. Now, if you will, turn back a few more psalms to the 16th psalm in the 10th verse. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Here is a prophecy of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that do anything for your faith? To know that hundreds and even thousand years before Jesus came to walk the face of the earth, that the prophets under inspiration of the Holy Spirit predicted what his life would be like. These are only a few examples of many which I could cite, if time permitted, of how Jesus fulfilled the prophetic word of God in the Old Testament. Jesus in saying, I am thirsty, 
was seeking to fulfill the Scriptures. Now, what are you doing about the prophecies of Scripture? Jesus knew them, but he did more than just know them. He did something about them. What are you doing about the Word of God? That part of Scripture which you understand, are you doing something about it? Are you fulfilling it? If you will follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, you'll do that. Jesus' roadmap for living was in the Scriptures, just as our roadmap for living is to be found in the Word of God. There's another reason, though, that Jesus said, I am thirsty. This reason is because he wanted to express the reality of the pain that was physical on the cross. Now, up until this point, Jesus has had absolutely nothing to say about the physical dimensions of pain on the cross. He has given his attention to the needs of others and to his Father who is in heaven. He has not alluded one time to the physical pain. And by the way, this is the only time in all of the seven sayings of Jesus that he mentions his pain whatsoever. He says, I thirst. In the New Testament era, there were teachers, false teachers, who suggested that Jesus was God, but he really wasn't man. They said that Jesus was a mere phantom, who when he walked on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, his feet left no prints because he was just a ghost. He was an apparition. He wasn't real. Let me share something with you this morning. The pain Jesus Christ experienced on the cross was real. The blood which spilled from his wounds was real. It was red. It cost him his very life. But up until this point, when Christ cries out at the conclusion of the cross experience, I thirst, evidently he had been so absorbed in his role of taking your place and my place in hell so that we could have eternal life that he had lost track of what was going on in his body. Certainly he felt it, but his preoccupation with his mission to redeem the world overtook any concern for his physical body and the ailments in his body. Have you ever had this experience where you were reading a good book and the pain of sleeplessness was somehow or another shoved into the recesses of your mind? You may have read into the wee hours of the morning. Or have you ever been so engaged in a task which absorbed your attention that you forgot to eat a meal or two or maybe more than two? Have you ever had that experience? Some of you who are athletes have known the experience of playing in a contest and being injured, but ignoring the injury and going on to play the game to its completion, to give it your best. Many illustrations could be cited at this point, only to get to the end of the game and discover that you had a great aching in your body somewhere. Jesus knew how to play with pain. Jesus was so concentrating on his mission to redeem mankind that he overlooked the pain. But his pain was real. I wish time permitted this morning for me to detail all of the pain that Jesus experienced, but let me just talk about a few examples of his pain. Let's go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke tells us that when Jesus was in the garden, he sweat great drops of blood. This is a phenomenon that is not unknown to medical science. It's called hematidrosis. 
when a person is under intense emotional stress, many times the little capillaries, the little blood vessels underneath the surface of the skin on the facial area will burst and mingle with perspiration and great drops of sweat and blood will mingle together. Jesus experienced this kind of agony in the cross. Can you imagine that kind of physical agony that accompanied the spiritual stress of the cross experience? When Jesus was sentenced to die on the cross, part of his sentence was that he would be scourged. The Roman soldiers had a tool called a flagellum. It had a short, thick handle, and then several strips of leather, and at the end of each strip of leather were two lead balls. The victim of the scourging would be tied to a post with its hands outstretched, and then the one who was administering the beating would begin to beat across the shoulders and the back and the legs of the victim. Before long, the blood vessels would begin to burst, and then with each repeated stroke, arterial bleeding would begin to occur and blood would begin to spurt from the back of the victim. Now listen, Jesus experienced this kind of pain, physical pain, for you and for me. The blood he shed there was part of the price he had to pay to redeem you and me from sin. Once this beating was administered, we're told that the soldiers in jest put a purple robe around Jesus and this had a clotting effect on the wounds on his back. His back was just a ribbon of flesh by this time. Then they fashioned a crown of thorns, jammed it into the brow of Christ. If you know anything about head wounds, you know they bleed profusely. Christ was taken to the cross. He was affixed to the cross, and the nails were probably driven not into the palms of his hand, archaeology is revealed, but probably into the depression that exists between the wrist and the hand. As Christ hung there with his feet crossed over each other and one nail riveted through the arch of both feet to the cross, he would have to raise himself to get oxygen and then lower himself. And as he would do that, the pain would shoot and race its way up and down the limbs of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before long, he would experience cramping in the pectoral muscles in his chest. This would bring on asphyxiation. Carbon dioxide would not be able to be exhaled from his body. and He would gradually asphyxiate. Then the sac around the heart, known as the pericardium, would begin to fill with fluid. Jesus would experience the pain of that fluid around his heart. Now, Jesus didn't die of the physical pain but that only added to his torture. Do you know that through all that, he never complained? He never complained. How much complaining have you done already today? Have any of you complained today? The scriptures tell us that we're to do everything without complaining, everything. I'm convinced that if you and I will assume the role of a servant in each other's lives, before long, we'll become so preoccupied in the redemptive ministry which Jesus has called us to that we will lose track of our own pain. Some of you are hurting here this morning, and one of the reasons you're hurting is because you're so self-conscious. You're so wrapped up in yourself that you don't have time to see that there's a whole world filled with people who are agonizing. Just as Jesus, when he looked off 
the cross, he saw all the agony before him. And he responded in prayer, didn't he? He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He said, Today you shall be with me in paradise to one of the thieves on the cross. Jesus, our Lord, was full of forgiveness on the cross, wasn't he? James Stalker has helped me, and I want to give him credit for this, in showing something to me about the forgiveness of Jesus on the cross. Now listen very carefully, and you're going to have to think in order to get this truth into your heart and soul. He says that there is more forgiveness in asking a favor than there is in granting a favor, especially if the one whom you are asking the favor of is your enemy. Now, hadn't those whom Jesus asked for a drink been the tormentors of the Christ when he was crucified? Hadn't they? Do you know what you and I are more prone to do when someone who is our enemy comes to us? We want them to ask us a favor, but we will grit our teeth before we will ask a favor of someone who has hurt us, won't we? We won't let someone know that they have hurt us. We become steeled. We will not become vulnerable to those who have hurt us. But here we see our Lord Jesus Christ forgiving these men in asking them a favor. Isn't that terrific? Let me move on to what I believe is the final explanation of why Jesus said, I thirst. He said it in order to symbolize the spiritual thirst of all of us. Jesus was fond of what the literary critics call double entendre. Do you know what that means? It means saying something that could be taken one of two ways. Jesus was in the habit of saying something with a double meaning. That's what double entendre means. Wherever the word thirst is used in the Gospel of John, it's used six times, it always carries with it, yes, the idea of physical thirst, but yes, also the idea of spiritual thirst. So when Jesus says, I thirst, he is echoing the sentiments of every human heart. He was thirsting for God. It's a lot like what we read in the book of Psalms where David said, For I thirst for God. My heart thirsts for God, for the living God. Now, whether you know it or not, every one of you here this morning thirsts for God. You long for God. You may not know how to describe what you're longing for, but let me tell you what it is. It's God. It's Jesus Christ is who you're longing for. Now, why do you suppose that right here in Arlington, Texas, people have a consuming desire for things? Why do you think there's such a craving for honor and prestige here in Arlington, Texas? Why do you think we rush after pleasure one after the other? Why is it do you think that we have an insatiable desire to acquire knowledge? It's because sin has ripped a gaping hole in the soul of man. And that hole causes us to ache. And that hole's presence in our life has caused the very life of God to seep out of our lives so that now we are dead in our trespasses and sin apart from Jesus Christ. The wells of wealth and prestige and fun and the well of honor 
have written across them the saying which Jesus said to the Samaritan woman when she came to draw water from the well. And that sign says, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. You're looking for fulfillment in the wrong place if you're looking anywhere else except to Jesus Christ. And you need to look to the Lord. He alone can fulfill this spiritual thirst. Natural things, temporal things cannot fulfill them. Only Jesus Christ, through his shed blood on the cross, can fulfill the need of your life in my life. I wonder if you had the same response that I had when I read Jesus' request for something to quench his thirst. My response was, I want to help him. I'd like to fulfill that thirst. I wish I'd been there, don't you? I mean, I was there in a way because it was my sins which put him on the cross. But if I had been there, I would have loved the privilege of dipping that sponge on the end of the hyssop plant into the wine vinegar, which was the wine of the poor people. It was not the wine of princes. And then taking it and lifting it to the lips of Jesus. Do you know what? You and I can do that today because Jesus is still thirsty. When Jesus said, I am thirsty, there was double meaning to what he had to say. And just as there were two meanings to the saying of Jesus, and just as there are two parts, the spiritual and the physical, in his very nature, he was both God and both man wrapped up in one. So you and I can quench physical needs, which Jesus has evidently today, and spiritual needs, which he obviously has today. Let me share with you from the parable of the sheep and goats. Jesus says, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, there it is, thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothing, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison. By the way, prisons take many forms. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. From year beginning to year end, thousands and thousands of Christians never do anything to directly involve themselves in relieving the needs of the poor. And Jesus said, when you've done it unto one of the least of these brothers of mine, you have done it to me. Do you believe that? Do you really believe what Jesus says? That when we reach out to our poor brothers and sisters, we are reaching out to the Lord himself? How long has it been since you've been to a hospital to visit someone who is sick? You need to go. You need to get in touch with death. How long has it been since you've been to a nursing home? I think it should be mandatory that every American go to a nursing home at least once a year. You know what that would do to you and me? It would sensitize us to the brevity of our own lives and encourage us to really get involved living our lives the way God intends us to live them. It would also help us to reach out and love people who need a touch of the Savior's hand. You can relieve the thirst of Jesus today by reaching out to some poor person in need. And in the book of Proverbs, 25th chapter and the 25th verse, Solomon writes, listen, like a cold drink to a weary soul is good news, 
from a distant land. The good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's from a distant land. It's from heaven. Jesus came down out of glory in order to give us a chance to know him and then to give us the responsibility and the privilege of quenching others' thirsts. How many people do you know who are within your sphere of influence who need a drink of the water that Jesus has to offer? How many times have you offered this water to them when it's accessible to you and they need Jesus? And you know what they need, but you walk away. You can fulfill the thirst of Jesus in that fashion as well. Lazarus was a poor man. The dogs came and licked his sores. He sat outside the gate of a wealthy man whose name we do not know. Day in and day out, this rich man left, dressed in his finery, riding in his good chariot with his servants attending him. And he came back, and he never had time to minister to this poor soul, Lazarus. Then the scene shifts from earthly reality and to the most terrible kind of reality, the reality of afterlife. And this rich man is in Hades, where Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham in paradise. And the rich man calls out and says to Father Abraham, Father Abraham, please let Lazarus come and just dip his finger into water and place it on my lips. Because they are parched. Just one drop. Do you realize that if you do not give your life to Jesus Christ and accept what he has done for you on the cross, that your eternal cry is going to be, I thirst, I thirst. Certainly Jesus, when he died on the cross and said, I am thirsty, he was saying it for all of us so that we could have eternal life. But if you refuse the eternal life which Jesus is offering to you today, you have no reason to gripe and complain as you go out into eternity. And there will be no second chance once you've left this life without Jesus Christ. Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Isn't that remarkable? But the water that I shall give, in, give to him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Then John in the book of Revelation says, Whoever wishes, let him come and take the free gift of the water of life. There are many of you here today who need the free gift of eternal life. It's yours for the taking. If you'll come to Jesus today, he'll give it to you.